Uh, we'll just be reading verse 8, and uh, as we are continuing to close and starting to get to the end now, verses 8 and 9, 9 is the last verse of the chapter of the book of the prophecy of Hosea, so we're going to read verse 8 tonight, and that's what we'll be dealing with. Uh, read with me, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree, from me is thy fruit found. So within the study of Hosea, as you are aware, we've discovered that concerning this last chapter of Hosea, chapter 14, that there are four divisions contained within this chapter. First, we see God's call for the people to return to him, verses 1 through 3. Second is God's promise to restore the people in verses 4 through 7. Third, which we're looking at tonight, is God's reminder of his provision for the people in verse 8. And then fourth is God's declaration to the people in verse 9. And so last week I pointed out to you the pattern of progression we see in verses 5 through 7 of this chapter. And let me remind you of this as well before we even look at that or consider that, that this chapter, as I mentioned when we first began chapter 14, some three or four weeks ago I guess now, I, I shared with you that this is a unique chapter in all the book of Hosea. Throughout the entirety of Hosea's prophecy, you find that the Lord is confronting the people with their sin, Israel, Ephraim, Judah, Israel as a whole. He's confronting them with their sin, with their idolatry, with their whoredoms, and he is calling them out for forsaking the covenant that he had made with them and not being faithful in that covenant, as provided in the example of, of Hosea and Gomer, of course, as we will read that again in a moment in chapter 1, verse 2. And then throughout the remaining chapters, the Lord is continually confronting them, calling them out on their sin, confronting them with their sin, and as well pronouncing his judgment upon them because of their sin. And if, verse, if chapter 14 were not present within the prophecy of Hosea, there would have not been any people left of all of this group of people of Israel. It is only because of God's mercy and grace and his faithfulness. Again, you must remember this even as we read through these verses tonight in chapter 14. We must remember that it's only the grace and mercy of God by which these people are turned back to him. It's not they woke up one day and decided... Oh, I think we'll, we'll just go try the Lord out. No, God turned them back to him. And had he not done that, they would have been consumed. They would have been condemned and destroyed like others among them were. There were a select chosen group out of those within Israel, out of those within Ephraim and Judah, which is all part of Israel. And they were, there were a, a chosen group that God had mercy and grace upon that the others, his judgment fell upon them. And so God is faithful in both his judgment and his grace and his mercy. And so we see this to be evident throughout this book. And we saw in verses 5 through 7, there's a progression, as we mentioned, of the one who's been restored through this redemptive, restorative work of God, a restorative work of God. First of all, we see the restored soul will be firmly rooted and grounded in verse 5. Read that with me. I will be as a dew unto Israel, the Lord said. He shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. When he says he'd be as a dew unto Israel, we have to remember he had previously stated concerning Ephraim specifically that he would be as a roaring lion unto Ephraim, and he would, he would tear, tear Ephraim apart and, and just leave her wasted. And so the Lord is saying there that he would do that, and that is his judgment and his wrath. But then he says, as a dew, he, now he would be as, as a dew unto, unto this people. And the dew is in reference, making a, a reference implication of, of the favor of God upon them, such as that which is refreshing and brings life and, and is comforting, if you will. And even as we read last week, I believe it's in Proverbs, if I'm not mistaken, where the scripture states that uh, the, the king's uh, uh, judgment or anger is, is as a, lying, a lion, but then that his favor is as the dew. And so we find both of those examples provided for us here in Hosea's prophecy 
how that God says he would be a roaring lion to Ephraim, but then now he's saying, I will be as a dew unto Israel. He shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. And this is the very foundation of all spiritual growth and fruitfulness in the life of the believer. The importance and necessity of this truth is expounded throughout Scripture, as we saw last week, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, just to name a couple of examples of that, in which we are to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, the knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, as Ephesians states, that we not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, that we not allow the, the religious nonsense or worldly philosophy to cause us to waver and, and, and not be stable upon the, the rock who is stable, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the truth of His Word. And so it's imperative that we be rooted and grounded. Then we find this progressive uh, pattern is seen second in verse 6. The restored soul not only will be rooted and grounded, but also will continue to grow. Verse 6, His branches shall spread, and His beauty shall be as the olive tree, and His smell as Lebanon. Now, when it speaks about His branches spreading, we again, I mentioned last week to you as a tree and the drip line, if you recall that. And whenever you, I didn't mention this last week, I meant to, and I just slipped my mind. But, but when you fertilize a, a plant, or when you fertilize a, a tree, you don't do it at the trunk. You do it at the drip line. And the reason for that, again, is because that is where the roots have spread to. That's where the roots are, are spreading to. The, the, the tree itself, uh, in most cases, the tree itself, the branches and, and the, the, the breadth of the branches, their reach, is, indicated, is an indicator of where the roots actually have stretched out and, and grown out un, to that point. And so the drip line where the water falls again when it rains and where the fertilization would take place is at that drip line. So when it says that he, the branches shall spread, it's only because first it's been rooted. Uh, his roots are already cast forth. They're rooted and grounded and they've spread out. And then the outward evidence is seen of the branches spreading because there is a depth of root and a spreading forth of the root. Again, you don't see all the roots, but you see the branches. But the branches could not be as they are if it were not for the roots that support them and, and provide for them. And it's important that we remember that as well as followers of Christ, of course, because again, as I mentioned last week, as an example, there are people who talk about wanting to expand ministry, about expand their outreach, to expand their... Listen, you will not be able to, to be fruitful and useful spiritually unless you are rooted and grounded in Christ. And He is the source of our strength. He is the source of our life. He is our life. And if and people want this outward appearance to be something, listen, most importantly is not what people see or what is viewed. It's that in which we are rooted and grounded in which is Christ. And the more so we are rooted and grounded, the more so the branches can spread forth and it will be sustained not because of us, because of the root, that in which we are rooted in, He which we are rooted in, which is Christ. And we see those who are rooted will grow mature. The root is the source and strength of the life of the plant. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Psalm 92, 12 and 15 through 15 are just examples of this again. Then we saw, again with this pattern progression, the third truth that the restored soul will be fruitful in verse 7. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. The rooted plant which grows and matures will also become and remain fruitful. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, John 15, 1 through 8, make that very clear. Those whom the Lord has redeemed, revived, and restored will be rooted in the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and will continue in the spiritual growth and strength which will produce spiritual fruit in and through them. And so again, notice the progression. Rooted. You must be rooted. Branches spreading forth. And then fruit is born. Fruit is being produced through that which is rooted and, and growing. And, and so again, with those who would profess spiritual life, uh, if there is no spiritual growth, 
It's because there is no spiritual life. And if there's no spiritual birth, there is no spiritual life. If one is not rooted in the truth, they will not spiritually mature and grow, and they will never bear forth spiritual fruit. They may bear forth wild grapes, bad fruit, but it will not be spiritual fruit of God. And let us remember this truth, too, because this is so important for us to always remember. Everything spiritual is not of God. And people are very confused about that because they think just because something's spiritual or, or have experiential and, and, and religious that all of a sudden that makes it godly. That's not true. And it's very important that we recognize that. In fact, Paul speaks of that concerning uh, the messengers uh, of Satan appearing as angels of light or messengers of light and, and the false prophets and, and heretics and such. So this evening, after looking back through verses 5 through 7 briefly, this evening we begin our study of the last two verses of this prophecy of Hosea, which we're only going to look at verse 8 tonight. And within this prophecy, we've seen God's indictment against the people for their idolatry. And the people, as I mentioned, such as Gomer, were unfaithful in the covenant that God had made with them. And in contrast, the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant was continually being magnified. So everywhere God is pointing out their unfaithfulness, we are seeing the truth of the faithfulness of God. And remember this as well. I said this to you in our study of Hosea some time back, that we never see the judgment of God or the wrath of God demonstrated apart from an example and demonstration also of His mercy and grace. Without exception, it's never done. And so even while God is judging these people and destroying many of them, condemning them, they're under His wrath and they are absolutely, utterly destroyed. And He's prophesying of that through Hosea. Still there will be, as we see in chapter 14, this remnant of people out of those who are... God's, God's favor, God's grace is, is bestowed upon them, and His mercy is extended to them. And the reason for this, again, don't forget this big picture of this passage, of this, of this prophecy. God is faithful to His covenant. It's not because these people were anything different than the others. They were as guilty as others. But yet, and we know that, let me, let me show you, if nothing else, even by their own association in this sense. If you recall with me, we've also looked at Isaiah a little bit through Hosea. Um, through this, this study. And if you remember in Isaiah, whenever Isaiah is pronouncing all the woes upon the people, woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them, until he sees the Lord, the glory of God in his temple. And what does Isaiah then say? Woe is me. So all of a sudden, for, for we are people of unclean lips. And it's not just now woe unto them, now it's me because he sees God in his glory and he recognizes I am guilty also. Maybe not to the same degree, let's say, as some of the others, but he says, I'm not holy. I am not righteous in myself, especially when in light of God's righteousness and God's glory. So we see God's faithfulness continually being magnified. Verse 8, let's look at that again. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I've heard him and observed him, the Lord says. I am uh, like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Now I've pointed out several times throughout the study that the theme is set, is set in God's command to Hosea to take Gomer as his wife as an example to the people. So let's look back at Hosea 1, 2 once again. Chapter 1, verse 2. The beginning of the words of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So Hosea 14, 8 begins addressing the continued sin of Ephraim's idolatry and their whoredoms against the Lord. Now remember, Hosea is commanded by God to go take a wife of whoredoms. As an example, the next statement shows us why. For the people had committed, had committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So Hosea takes Gomer, who is, is a, a, an adulterous woman, and he marries her. And Hosea remains faithful to her. Hosea buys her back. He redeems her 
despite her unfaithfulness to him, which is an example, of course, to the people of God's redemptive work and his faithfulness to the covenant relationship. And then you have Gomer, who is unfaithful to Hosea, who prostitutes herself out in reality is what's taking place. And so the example here again is that God has made a covenant with this people. God is faithful to his covenant while the people are spiritually prostituting themselves out. Again, making covenants with the Assyrians, attempting to, Ephraim did that, because they were looking to find help from the Assyrians, remember that? While they are already in a covenant relationship with God that they are not acknowledging, that they are not committed and faithful to. But notice, and this is where this is so important to recognize, despite their unfaithfulness, even in attempting to form covenant relationships with God's enemy, God's declared enemy and the enemy of the people themselves, despite all of that, God still spares them, a a, a remnant of them. He is still faithful to his purpose and his covenant. So Hosea 14.8 again begins addressing the continued sin of Ephraim's idolatry and the whoredom against God. Verse 8. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom and Israel is defiled. Chapter 6.10. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Chapter 8.11. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. Chapter 13, 1 and 2. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offered in Baal, he died. Or offended, I'm sorry, in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Now it's interesting, as we've just read, these examples of Ephraim's idolatry and their, their, whore, their, their sin of whoredom against God, their unfaithfulness to the Lord, and, and prostituting themselves out in a spiritual sense. I've given you the first and the last mention of Ephraim in Hosea's prophecy, and we see this in chapter 417. And listen to the, to, the, to the contrast here. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. That's the first mention of Ephraim in all of Hosea's prophecy. The last mention of Ephraim is in our text tonight, verse 8, in which he says, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? Now, the first mention of Ephraim reveals their wickedness in turning to idols. They've joined themselves to idols. And notice the word joined. Isn't that interesting? Because what is the emphasis of this prophecy? There is a covenant relationship. A man is joined to a woman. A woman is joined to a man. They become one flesh. Here, Ephraim has joined himself to idols. It's no mistake that this type of language is being used because it's focusing on the fact not they've just committed a sin. No, they have joined themselves with sinfulness and wickedness. They've become a part of this. It's become a part of them. And God says, let them alone. While the last mention of Ephraim in Hosea's prophecy is in chapter 14, 8, what have I to do anymore with idols? And this is a testimony to God's faithfulness to cure them from their apostasy. In Hosea 14.4, we've read previously, not tonight, but in the last few weeks, I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. What is most significant concerning the contrasts of the first and last mention of Ephraim in Hosea's prophecy is the absolute transformation which God's redemption produces within those whom he has redeemed. Israel or Ephraim has turned or joined himself to idols, let him alone. But God has now intervened, turning Ephraim, curing him from his backsliding, from his apostate condition. And now Ephraim is saying, what do we have to do with idols? We don't want anything to do with this. 
That is an absolute transformation that is only a reality because God is faithful to His covenant. That's the only reason. Hosea 14, 2 and 3. Take with you words and turn to the Lord, saying to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. That's Assyria. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. So here again what's being said is Asher, Assyria, shall not save us. When we went to go make a covenant with them, now we understand they're not going to save us. They're not our help. They're not our hope. Neither will we ride upon horses. Speaking again of Egypt, the chariots and the horses, which, is, which Egypt was known for, and, and going back to Egypt, taking oil to Egypt. Remember an attempt to to join again in a a partnership with them, that they might gain favor from the Egyptians. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods, when they had said before, oh, we've prospered of our own work. We've done this labor, and we're the ones who've caused ourselves to prosper, taking taking, uh, credit for what God had allowed them to even do and given them strength to do. And then they state, make the statement, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. So in God alone the fatherless findeth mercy. Even, even the, the, the child, the orphan, which is of course indicated in even the orphan which has no means to provide for himself, no means to protect himself, no means to, 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 uh, for, to provide his own safety and his own, his own provision, but yet it is this one that they now come and say that the, the orphan, the fatherless, it is God that shows mercy upon him, the one who's helpless, the one who's hopeless, the one who has no means of their own doing. They find mercy in the sight of God. So the Lord cured Ephraim from their apostasy, which required that their mind and their heart be changed. And we see that clearly, because what have they been saying? Oh, our hands prosper us. We're going to make covenants. We're going to solve our problems. We're going we're to be fine. And this change of heart and mind, which is referred to in Scripture as what? Repentance. Repentance. Yes, because the heart and the mind being changed is repentance. Again, let me give you an example of this. Read Jonah, it becomes clear too, by the way, in Jonah. But in in Jonah chapter 3, I believe it is. But if you look at at repentance, repentance is not, I'm going to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. That is not what repentance is. Repentance today has been redefined. Let's just look at this. This is very important to look at. Let's go to Jonah for a moment. For a moment. Turn over to the book of Jonah and look at chapter 3. Let's read and begin reading in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he rose up from his throne and he laid his robe up from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast nor herd Herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violences or violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God, now look at verse 10, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, let me first of all clarify this. Repented here does not mean that God just changed his mind. This is a different use of the word here, of course. It is saying that they are saying, who can tell if God will be merciful to us? Because God's declared judgment upon them. And who can declare, or who, who will know what God will do? And God did extend mercy to them. But remember something. 
This was always the purpose and plan of God. The warning that he would destroy them was absolutely true if he did not deliver them out from under his judgment. But notice this. The people believed. Did you see that? They believed God. Why would they believe God? These people hated God and hated the people of God. And Jonah comes preaching and Jonah says, I don't want to preach to them because I hate them too. They were wicked, cruel people, the Ninevites. And yet, God says, Jonah, you're going to go. And God, Jonah says, I don't think so, God. And God says, Jonah, you're going to go. And Jonah went. And Jonah preached. And what did God do? God's, God's mind did not change. God changed the people. His word changed the people, and that was the intent all along. And what does he do? He takes them out from under condemnation. Now, repentance has been defined today, redefined, misdefined, as or misrepresented as uh, turning from evil, right? Turning from evil and turning to good. But let's look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil. So what does God call, what does the scripture call turning from evil? You just read it. God saw their works. Is repentance works? Of course not. And so the idea that repentance is me turning from evil, that's work. That is something I'm doing. That's not repentance. Let me show you the repentance. Go back to verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's the repentance. They had a change of heart and mind concerning God and what God said. They didn't care what God said before this. Why all of a sudden did they change their heart and mind? Because God changed their heart and mind. And then it led to them doing what? Turning from evil. Repentance is not turning from evil. The fruit of repentance is that one is turning from evil because they believe God. But that has nothing to do with the repentance itself. Remember John the Baptist? When John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, comes on the scene, what does he say? What did he preach? Repent. Did he say repent of your drunkenness? Did he say repent of your idolatry? Did he say, what did he say? He said repent. Repent, but repent what? what what's, remember, behold, the Lamb of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. For Christ is here. The, the Messiah has come. And the people, did they believe the Messiah was Christ, that Jesus is the Christ? By large, did they believe that? No, they did not. What is John calling for them to repent of? Going back to Malachi, as you know, the people claimed they worshiped God. They claimed they sacrificed unto God. They claimed that they were faithful to God. And God says, no, you're not. You despise my name. You offer polluted offering, sacrifices unto me. You, you don't honor and respect me at all. So when G- John comes and says, repent, he is telling them that their heart and mind concerning who Jesus the Messiah is must change. That's what they're repenting of. And it's not that they are doing something. It's that he's saying, behold the Lamb of God. And those to whom faith was given believed and turned unto Christ, believing him to be the Messiah. But how many did not? And so here we find this repentance is not works. 
Repentance is a change of heart and mind that only God can bring about. And then the evidence of that repentance is that one is turning from their sin. But that's because God's already worked in their heart, in their life. So the Lord's the one who cured them from their apostasy, which meant their heart and mind must change, these people of Ephraim. So the people are no longer looking for help and answers from the world and its worldly sinful system, but now they were totally dependent upon the Lord for help and provision according to His grace and mercy. In verses 2 and 3 again, he says, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. Verse 3. Second, verse 8, we see where he says, I have observed or heard him and observed him. This verse again reminds us of the faithful mercies of God. These are the same people again who had turned to idolatry. They committed great whoredoms against the Lord, yet still he heard them. And we must remember that these people were uh, who, who looked to make a covenant with the Assyrians, the same people, they had turned to their false gods and idolatry, completely rejecting God in the covenant relationship in which they had been joined to him in that covenant. We must remember this. We also must remember that it was the Lord who turned the minds and the hearts of the people, as we've already mentioned, back to himself. It was the Lord who cured them of their apostasy. Not because they were faithful, but because he is faithful to his eternal redemptive purposes. You've got to see this. Look, these people are not faithful. That is so clearly announced and declared throughout the entire 13 previous chapters of Hosea. And chapter 14 singles out the truth of God's faithfulness despite all of that. And again, what would change the hearts and minds of these people? God. He's the only one who can. Consider like this for a minute. How many times have someone sat and heard the truth of Christ in the gospel and totally unmoved? I mean, totally disregard the whole, the whole truth. And then one day all of a sudden, they're awakened to the truth of their tremendous need. Did they come to that on their own? No, God does that. God is the one who awakens us to that truth. So we remember the people had totally rejected God's truth. It was the Lord who turned them back to himself because he is faithful. It's only because the Lord's faithfulness to himself and his purposes that he hears any of us. Limitations 3, 21 through 25. And I've read this to you before, but it's just a great reminder of this truth. The writer says, Jeremiah, this I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, wow, look at that. Your compassions are new every morning. We are not consumed only because of your mercy. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. I, I won't turn to the Assyrians, I won't turn to the Egyptians, I won't turn to the world, I will not turn to the works of my hands. As Ephraim came to understand, it's the Lord who is our hope. We find mercy in him alone. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Psalm 34, 15-19, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, his ears are upon, open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Here again, we're seeing where God is saying uh, through the psalmist, he's saying that he, is, he will hear those who are of a broken spirit, a contrite heart. God will not turn them away. He will not despise those who are humble before him. But remember something, no man will ever humble himself before God. 
God humbles men in salvation. And then we are commanded to humble ourselves as believers because we've already been humbled by God. But man will always do just as Adam did and hide behind fig leaves, hide behind religion, hide from God trying to do his best to cover his sin and provide for himself, which he can never do. The Lord hears those who cry out to him, but let us remember something. It is not because we cry that he hears, but it's because he has promised to hear that we cry out. See, it doesn't start with us crying out. No man cries out. Adam, when he first sinned, he set the entire example for what every man would do thereafter. Adam sinned, and what does he do? He made fig leaf aprons, and he hid. And God calls Adam out, Adam, where art thou? Confronting him with the sin. You've sinned, you're hiding, not because I don't know where you are. You have to come, I'm going to confront you, and you must face me in light of your sin. And Adam's hiding, doing the best he can to stay away. So we don't cry out to God. Or God doesn't hear us because we cry out to him. No, we cry out to him because he's promised he would hear those who would cry out. And he's the one who awakens us to our need for him. That we might cry out. He turns our hearts towards him. He promises to hear those whose hearts have been turned towards him. This again reveals that restoration is all based upon his faith, and to his purpose and covenant. And the latter part of verse 8, I am like a green fir, fir tree, for me is thy fruit found. So the green fir is, of course, stable, it's consistent, it's an evergreen, which does not change according to the outside conditions. Its leaves don't fall and then produce new. No, it's constant, it's consistent, it's always the same. The fir tree provides certainty. The Lord is never changing. He is faithful, and despite the wickedness of man, God's truth is certain. His judgment, wrath, grace, love, and mercy does not change. This truth again reminds us that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, as Jeremiah stated. The Lord continued by stating that their fruit is found in Him. The Scriptures clearly teach us that God, as the husbandman, has planted or rooted us in Jesus Christ, and it is in Christ that we are vitally connected that we might bear spiritual fruit, which is pleasing and glorifying to the husbandman, the Heavenly Father. John 15, 1-8. We read this last week. I want to read it again as, as we close tonight. I am the true vine, Jesus says. My Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein, verse 8, is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now do you hear what Jesus said? If, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So he's not saying that you're going to do something and that proves you're my disciple. He's saying... Without me, you can do nothing. You must be abiding in me. And the word abide here is to continue, to continue in him. And remember, Romans 11 makes clear here what's being stated as well. Israel were the natural branches that were cut off because they were not in Christ. And yet now we as Gentiles have been grafted into the tree, into the vine. And we are, as we continue in Christ... We grow and fruit is being produced through us because the husbandman is the one who's providing and caring for the branch who has been grafted into the vine. And it's the life of the vine that produces the fruit that we have the privilege of bearing. 
All this to the glory of God. Listen, no man will stand before God and say, Oh God, look what I did for you. Didn't I do great? We will stand humbly before God, giving Him the glory, casting before Him the reward, because we realize, if you don't realize it now, you will then. You deserve no credit and no glory for anything that's accomplished in your life. It is all to the glory of God. Every bit of it. And you say, well, then what is the joy? What is the joy of, of casting crowns at the feet of Christ if I'm given a reward and then I give it right back? That's the glory of it. That God has included us in His glory being made known and allowed us the privilege to be used of Him that we might then give Him even further glory in eternity for all that He has done. Man does not seek God until God turns man's heart back to himself. God must do this. Man will continue to seek to find answers, solutions for his wicked and helpless condition as demonstrated through Israel, Ephraim, and Judah, Israel as a whole. Without success, he'll continue to seek. But God, who is rich in mercy and faithful to his covenant, will remain constant and true to his promise. For it is in the Lord alone that any of us have any hope. Listen. We are redeemed not because one day we said, oh, God, save us. That's not why we're redeemed. We're not redeemed because one day we went to church. We're not redeemed because we started doing good things and stopped doing bad things. We're not, no, we are redeemed for one reason, because God is faithful to His purpose. And God will do that which He has said He would do. Remind you very simply of the statement Jesus made, and I find this very interesting. Jesus said that He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, contrary to how many people would interpret that, it does not say he came to seek and to attempt to save lost people. It says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And he says, I came not to my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of the Father which has sent me, that all the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will no wise cast out. Remember him saying that? He said that. I'm not making this up. Jesus said that. All the Father giveth him will come, and those who come he will not cast out, and I will lose none of them but I will raise him up again in the last day. That's what Jesus said. He didn't come to attempt or try to do anything. He came to fulfill the will of the Father, and that will is continuing to be accomplished today through the gospel. And all this is only possible not because men have some awakening of their own doing or because they come to some religious truth. No, it's because God is faithful. This is all hinged on the faithfulness of God. Ephraim, Israel, none of these would have survived. Do you not see that? 13 chapters of you've sinned, I'm judging you. You've sinned, I'm judging you. You've sinned, I'm judging you. 13 chapters of this. And then chapter 14. Oh, but by the way, there's going to be some of you that I cure of your apostasy. Not all of you, but I'm going to cure some of you of your apostasy. Why? Because God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. Because the covenant is still true and he is faithful to the covenant that he has made. Thank God for His faithfulness. We are absolutely dependent upon His grace, His mercy, His faithfulness. And, and, and I'll tell you something else too. Even as a believer in Jesus Christ, the, covenant, the new covenant is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's done. It's finished. And thank God for that too. But let me say this to you at the same time. If that were not true, and this covenant were dependent upon our performance, we would be no different than those who are judged and destroyed in Hosea's prophecy. Because just like Israel, Judah, and Ephraim, we are not always faithful to the covenant. 
but he is. And that covenant's been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank God again for his faithfulness.